Kira, and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Dr. Anna Alinda Camburn on myelodysplastic syndrome. Anna is a New Zealand trained haematologist with specialist expertise in myeloproliferative and myelodysplastic disorders. Anna is actively involved in haematology research and is the lead investigator for several clinical trials in New Zealand. Anna works publicly at White Matter DHB and privately at Harbour Cancer Centre. Welcome, Anna. Thank you, Louise. So, Anna, just starting with a definition of myelodysplastic syndrome. Well, the formal definition of myelodysplastic syndrome is that this is a group of hematopoietic stem cell disorders um, that are characterized by ineffective hematopoiesis, leading to cytopenias, dysplasia in one or more of the myeloid cell lines, and it's associated with an increased risk of progression to acute leukemia. Now, dysplasia is a term that describes abnormal cells within a tissue organ, and you'll remember you know, chondrodysplasia or, or things like that from our physiology lectures. So in myelodysplasia, we're talking about abnormality in the development and the formation of the um, bone marrow stem cells. That's the formal definition. And it's a very heterogeneous group of disorders and it spans the spectrum from mild myelodysplasia or um, low-grade myelodysplasia, it's the more formal term, to high-grade myelodysplasia, which does carry a real risk of progression to acute leukemia. Perfect. And how common is the syndrome? Well, I think the true incidence is not known because it's often not picked up. So in general, we say the incidence is 3 to 5 per 100,000 per year. But that increases with age, and then the population over the age of 70 is probably more like 20 per 100,000. But again, it's unless you're looking for it, unless you're picking it up, you there'll be many who go undiagnosed. Definitely increases with age. So age is clearly a risk factor. What are the other risk factors for myelodysplastic syndrome? So other risk factors include exposure to marotoxic agents like chemotherapy or radiation or, or benzene or, or chemical compounds like that essentially exposure to mutagens. Some people think that smoking might um, increase the risk somewhat, but in general it's age and um, chemotoxic agent exposure. And are there any differences in ethnic groups in New Zealand? Not specifically. It tends to affect men more commonly than women. Uh, I'm not aware of a specific ethnic risk group. Great. Okay, thank you. So... You touched on the pathophysiology briefly before, but I wonder if you can tell us what's happening in the body. So basically the pathogenic mechanism is a mutation in one or more of the genes that control blood cell development within the um, stem cell niche. So there's a mutation or often more that over time, as people acquire more mutations, the cell development uh, is altered as a result. Sometimes there can be driver mutations that drive proliferation, but it might be genes involved with splicing or cell division that lead to formation of abnormal cells. 
and then you get a formation of a, the clone and then that might have a survival advantage and over time that can continue to proliferate and divide and conquer, if you like, within the marrow and that's where the risk of um, transformation of leukemia can occur. And typically, how does a patient present? Most typically, it's an incidental finding on a blood count, a full blood count. And so many patients are completely unaware and asymptomatic and it will be their GP or another practitioner who's ordered a full blood count and they get an abnormal result. So I mentioned in the beginning cytopenia. So people will come either with anemia or neutropenia or thrombocytopenia or a combination. And often you'll know there's lots of causes of anemia, lots of causes of thrombocytopenia. So you typically have to exclude the other reactive or other causes. We also can see features on the blood film in what the cells actually look like. And if you look carefully at the blood film comment, they might say the red cells are macrocytic, so larger than normal. They are dysplastic. And with the red cells, you might see nucleated red cells on the film, or the cells might be stippled, or they might have variation in size and shape. The neutrophils, if they're dysplastic, they might be hypogranular or have abnormal nuclei. Um, the platelets might be also hypogranular or might have a very great variation in size that's not normal. And so normally a hematologist would make a comment about the, what they actually look like under the microscope. And that would often trigger a, um, if it's significant in terms of significant anemia or significant thrombocytopenia or neutropenia, that would often trigger a GP to, to refer to us for, for advice or to call us for you know, what do I do about this? And the standard reply, if it's a mild anemia or mild thrombocytopenia or mild neutropenia, is exclude the other courses and, and come back to us if you're still concerned. Examining our patient, are there any clues to diagnosis? What should we be looking for if we have a patient in our room and we've had an abnormal film or we're starting to think there may be something going on? What systems should we be looking at and what are the clues? Well, there isn't a specific examination finding will tell you this is myelodysplasia. If I was telling a student how to examine or take history for myelodysplasia, you want to take a good history to exclude other causes of the cytopenia. When you examine a patient, the specific signs you look for is you know, pallor for anemia, petechiae or um, nucleocutaneous bleeding or hemorrhagic um, bully in the mouth for thrombocytopenia. You can look for, um, and we do, look for lymphadenopathy and hepatosplenomegaly because some of the myelodysplastic syndromes may be associated with uh, myeloproliferative disorders too. So there's chronic myelomonocytic leukemia or CMML and they may have gum hypertrophy, they may have some slightly large nodes, they may have a pedospedomegalus. We do look for them, but there isn't a specific exam finding that will tell you, oh, this is myelodysplasia. It's more, much more in the laboratory investigation. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. So we've got a patient who's either asymptomatic or got an abnormal blood film, may or may not have some symptoms. You alluded to some cascade sort of blood testing, but are there any other investigations we should be considering in primary care? Once you've checked your, the baseline will be your hematemic, your iron studies, your folate, your B12, your autoimmune screen, your thyroid function. If I'm looking for, for 
evaluating cytopenia is I think you should do renal function because if you've got renal impairment, that can cause anemia. I think you should do liver function tests because if you've got liver impairment, you could be thrombocytopenic. I would, in an elderly person, always do a immunoglobulism, serum protein, electrophoresis, and serum free light chains because what if there's an underlying plasma cell dyscrasia as well? So they would be fairly standard. So in terms of investigations of neutropenia, that should also include viral serologies. We would typically look for EBV, hepatitis, HIV if, if appropriate, because all of those viral infections can cause neutropenia. Um, in terms of specifics, once you have had a, you raise a suspicion of myelodysplasia, then the next step to for, formally diagnose that is a bone marrow biopsy. Uh, because that's where we can actually look at the cells themselves and we can order um, uh, close cytometry on the cells. We look for blasts. Uh, we can order um, cytogenetic analysis, um, karyotyping. We can also look for specific mutations uh, by means of molecular studies. But not everybody with you know, a cytopenia needs a bone marrow biopsy. And I think... What's important to understand is that myelodysplasia is a spectrum of disorders, like I said, from low grade to high grade. When things are significant, and bone marrow is indicated, is typically if there's a significant anemia. Our cutoff is usually around 100. A significant thrombocytopenia, again, often platelet count less than, less than 100, or a neutropenia, definitely less than 1, um, maybe less than 0 0.7, 0 0.8. And I think if, if the cytopenia has progressed, that would also um, earn, if you like, a referral for a bone marrow biopsy. The other thing to mention is that if on your blood film there's a comment about circulating blasts, blasts are the, you know, the very, very early precursor in the marrow, and blasts are the cell that we talk about in leukemia, then that would also, you know, should trigger a, a discussion with the hematologist. And normally we, we would be made aware if there was a connecting pass. The blood film would be referred to a hematologist to look at anyway. So you've mentioned uh, referring on, and that was my next question really. Are there any particular, apart from the circulating blast that you mentioned, are there any other sort of red flags that would make us in primary care go, oh gosh, we need oh, to... Yeah, I mean, a rapidly progressive anemia for which you have no explanation, a rapidly progressive thrombocytopenia for which we have no explanation or similarly with a, a neutropenia. Yeah, and, and we, you know, this is common in elderly and most of the patients I see would be in their 80s, but I have definitely had young patients with myelodysplasia and they're the ones that you do want to pick up. They're the ones that do need a bone marrow biopsy. They're the ones that do need risk stratification because the treatment for myelodysplasia for young people if they have high-risk myelodysplasia, is an allogeneic stem cell transplant. So, yeah, so you want to know about those. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So patients often say to us, you've made this referral, what am I going to expect when I go to see the specialist? What should we be telling them? So when patients come to see hematologists, they should expect that we will go through their medical history again because we want to go through with a fine-tooth comb and make sure we've excluded all other courses. Uh, we take a thorough, um, we take a family history. There are some inherited bone marrow disorders, including the um, dysplasia. So we do that. 
Um, there is a form of myelodysplasia seen in, in children, so that's very, very rare, but we would look at that. We take a thorough um, drug history because, as we know, many drugs inhibit the bone marrow and can cause um, dysplasia. Uh, and we do all those blood tests if, if they haven't been recently done. And then uh, we ask about symptoms, and we always ask about symptoms relating to anemia, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, infections, bleeding, um, fatigue. We examine them fully, and then we talk about further tests, including the bone marrow biopsy test. And often, if we think it's something that needs an, you know, prompt uh, investigation, we would say we'll endeavor to do this bone marrow biopsy in the next week or two. If it's a grumbling, mild anemia in someone who's 80 with otherwise settled counts, then, then we might say, well, I'll do a bone marrow biopsy because it's useful to have the diagnosis. But if it's done in four weeks or six weeks, that's fine. And in some patients, you have to ask yourself, okay, if I diagnose myelodysplasia in you, is that going to change how I manage you? And if you're not going to change how you treat somebody, then you can afford to say, well, in this situation, we will simply monitor you by means of regular blood tests, maybe six weekly or three monthly. Or depends a little bit on the trend that you have seen in their past tests. So, yeah, I think you should tell your patient you will get a 40-minute to an hour consultation. They'll go through things quite thoroughly. They'll examine you, and they may recommend that you have a bone marrow biopsy. So just moving on to management for a moment, uh, you alluded to a spectrum of disease, so I'm anticipating there's a spectrum of management. Can you just talk us through what that would look like? Yeah, so for a person with um, low-grade myelodysplasia, and we, we base our classification on the WHO 2016 classification, and the classification is based on one, the number of cytopenia, so if it's single lineage versus all three or two, the um, number of blasts in the bone marrow, uh, and we also base it on certain cytogenetic abnormalities. And then we can, by doing that, we can stratify patients into low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. In a low risk patient with only anemia, if they have no symptoms, the option may well be to simply monitor their blood count. And my typical advice to GPs would be, you know, two monthly blood tests. We can arrange a top-up transfusion if they develop anemia-related symptoms. Some of these patients may qualify for erythroid-stimulating agents like erythropoietin or binocrit is the agent we currently use. So we may give them binocrit. Others, we yeah, we simply monitor. If they're uh, intermediate risk, we often monitor them a bit more closely and they may well be the ones that need transfusions on a regular basis and by regular I can mean anything from fortnightly to three monthly this depends on the patient if someone is getting a lot of blood transfusions we may start to look at iron chelation to reduce the risk and complications of iron overload over time most patients don't need it but it's something to keep in mind and high-risk myelodysplasia, it depends very much on the patient's age and their fitness for treatment. So as I mentioned earlier, a young patient would be referred to Auckland City Hospital for consideration of uh, possibly induction chemotherapy and consideration of allogeneic stem cell transplant with, with curative intent. 
an elderly patient, and by elderly, it's typically if you're over 70, there's probably a slight uh, leeway there. And it's obviously also based on your comorbidities. If you're younger, but with lots and lots of comorbidities, you also wouldn't be referred for a transplant. But an elderly patient, we manage them with chemotherapy or um, hypomethylating agents. You may have heard the name acetazidine, which is administered in the hematology units. Patients come in for a subcutaneous injection uh, for seven days out of a 28-day cycle. Um, and in between they're just at home and that can be effective for approximately 50% of patients. And if patients progress to acute leukemia, we may intensify that treatment to more leukemia-directed therapy like using low-dose ARC and in some centres also venetoclax, but I won't labour the, <laughs> the specifics. So prognosis obviously depends on grade, end stage, and treatment. But is there a general guide for prognosis? Prognosis definitely depends on the, the disease category. So if you're low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. And if you're very high risk and you um, progress to leukemia, then your prognosis could be in the order of six months or, 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 or a year, depending on if you respond to treatment. If you have a low-grade MDS, um, median over, overall survival could be five plus years. So that's where the bone marrow biopsy becomes really useful because it helps us to stratify the patient from the beginning and we can then counsel the patient and their family about what to expect. But like I said, for someone who's 90 or 87, that might become a bit academic and I very much take into consideration um, what the patient wishes are, uh, what their family circumstances are, what their comorbidities are, what's their chance of dying or something different. And if I'm not going to change management, then you could argue that there's very little point to subject someone to a bone marrow biopsy. I totally agree. Great. Well, thank you. And to conclude our podcast today, Anna, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? I think it's useful, especially in the elderly population, to to consider myelodysplasia as a cause for cytopenias. Uh, and also, if you have unexplained cytopenias in, in a young person, please let us know. And I think GPs in general are very good at doing that, actually. Know the basic investigations of cytopenias so that you can do them frontline. And then, in particular, if you have significant cytopenias, I think I mentioned, you know, hemoglobin around that 100 mark, platelets around that 100 mark, neutropenia below one, do send a referral. We may respond by just giving advice, but I think at least then it's something that's been thought about. And when I get such a referral, what I do is I look at the patient's blood count over time and I often accumulate back 20, 30 blood tests and see, is this a persistent stable cytopenia? Is this a recent thing? Um, are there comments about dysplasia? Have any of my colleagues in the hematology world look at the blood film and made comments that might trigger me, what other tests have been done. And so therefore I, even though I've had very, just a quick referral, what do you think about this blood count? You know, I can actually go back and look through and I think give quite a considered opinion even without meeting the patient. I think to have an understanding that this word myelodysplasia does encompass a very heterogeneous disease and treatment is very variable depending on where on the spectrum uh, a diagnosis for a patient lies 
and yeah, that for elderly, a bone marrow biopsy may not be particularly useful long term. Great. Thank you, Anna. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast, please log it. And also go to our website for the resources that Anna and I have used in producing this podcast. Thank you for listening.